This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Pagonis, and I'm your host for this episode. Today, I'm speaking with Mackenzie Cooley about her new book, The Perfection of Nature, Animals Breeding and Race in the Renaissance, published by the University of Chicago Press in November 2022, so coming right up. Mackenzie Cooley is an intellectual historian who studies the uses, abuses, and understandings of the natural world in early modern science and medicine. Her research has been funded by the Fulbright Foundation and Mellow Foundation, among other grants. Over 2021 to 2022, uh, Mackenzie was Villa Itati Residential Fellow at the Harvard University Center for Italian Renaissance Studies, where she developed research for her second monograph, Filling the Treasury of Knowledge, the Treasury of Knowledge, excuse me, The Global Quest for Cures in the Early Modern Mediterranean. She's presently co-editing two volumes, Natural Things in Early Modern Worlds and Knowing an Empire, Imperial Science in the Chinese and Spanish Empires, 1500 to 1800. Mackenzie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Rachel. Well, it's wonderful to have you here talking about this fascinating topic. And to begin, would you tell us a bit about your own background? And I'm really interested in, as we were speaking before we started, um, what your background with animals and animal breeding is. Oh, absolutely. So in many ways, um, surprising as it may be for a book about the Renaissance, um, is that this is a very personal book. I mean, um, I grew up in a household with um, two mother figures, a biological mother and a godmother. And um, it's really important to the story because in many ways, that was a, a house that was based on a kind of platonic love, right? It was a house about friendship and, you know, there wasn't a lot of discussion about um, reproduction or romance or sex or anything like that, Um, which is like always something that has struck me as a little bit radical within um, uh, kind of variations of queer spaces. and within our house, um, I, I was a, a child of, um, of a sperm donor. And um, so we were always actually very open to talking about reproductive technologies, um, but not 
often to discussing some, we didn't often discuss some of the reasons that those reproductive technologies developed um, or their histories or, you know, dare I say, um, some of the selective qualities that are built into, you know, choosing the right donor to, um, uh, with whom to have a baby, right? Um, And I was born in 1990, so you can imagine where this sits in the development of all of these different um, reproductive tools to um, make it possible for um, non-hetero families in order to have children. So in our house, you know, what we spent our time doing together was in many ways uh, cultivating a life that was filled with certainly books and history and languages, but animals. I, I did a lot of um, work with with our, you know, pets around the house, as many children do, but very early I became obsessed with horses, and um, my mom really leaned into this. She made it possible for me to work at this um local farm, Grey Rock Farm. And I ended up riding dressage and training horses. And it was, you know, so central to my life that I rode horses all the way up to, well, in my early graduate school, um, when I, I, I brought a horse to, to Stanford with me. Um, and really that experience of working so closely with horse training, um, changed the way I looked at um, animals and I and I looked at questions of, of pet keeping and the kind of intimate relations that we have with the non-humans who surround us. Um, so for example, um, I think that people who grow up on a farm, I learned from many conversations with folks who grew up on farms and and my own experiences in the horse world often learn about sex through interactions with animals, right? The, maybe the first time they had they would have seen um, what humans would call intimacy might have been in the field outside of their door. And that is a radically different experience from what it means to live in a suburban household surrounded by um, uh, neutered pets and to see where reproduction takes place, right? In many ways, our, our homes, many American homes, have been um, tried to clamp down on non-human animal sex, right? And so one of the things that just really struck me are, were these radically different worlds of reproduction and uh, in which, um, you know, each world, the world of horses, the world of cats and dogs, where you want them to more or less be be spayed and neutered in a modern household, and the world of, of humans had entirely different rules when it came to how the next generation would be made, who discussed that making, and maybe even who was in charge of, of um, deciding those reproductive priorities. Wow. Um, and those are really interesting questions. I, I, it's also quite funny to me or coincidental that um, from one horse obsessed person to another, <laughs> you and I happen to meet. Um, and perhaps I chose your book partly because that interest of animal breeding was uh, one that I have of my own. So um, let's get to some terminology. And a central concept in the book is that of razza, which is an Italian word. 
and it seems to encompass a multitude of meaning. So would you explain what Ratze is and why it's so important to your work? Yeah, absolutely. So I first came across the term Ratze when I was in the archives of the city of Mantua. Um, Mantua was a real um, stronghold in the Italian Renaissance. It is this amazing city um, kind of between Milan and Venice in Italy, and everyone should go if they have the opportunity to. The artwork is ridiculous, and it's just dripping in history. And, you know, I'd come across the term Razza, I suppose, in some of my Italian classes and Spanish classes and other Romance language works, but I really had to think about it when I when I started um, reading about animals in the Mantuan collections. And this word Razza was just all over the place. Um, it was all over the papers to, uh, about um, what it would mean to create a, a stud of horses. So on one hand, um, Rasa as, as, a, as, a, as, a as a modern world has a series of multivalent meanings. On one hand, it can be a breed, right? Like a specific um, population of animals bred for a purpose. Um, it can also be a stock or a stud. You would particularly use this for horses or other livestock. So um, that means a group of animals that have all grown up in one place and that are all under kind of one breeder's management. But then, of course, we get to this slippage between raza and the English word race, right? Now it's not a direct um, it's not a direct translation. There's a lot that's happened between um, the evocation of this word Ratza in Romance languages and the rise of of the English language of race. But the English term does derive from these Romance language roots. Um, so Ratza is a, a etymologically speaking, in terms of the history of the word. Um, Ratza is a neologism that starts to creep up in the late medieval period into the um, uh, Renaissance and the early modern period. And it's used to describe a selected population. It's used, as I've said, as like a stud of horses, as a breed, but also it's applied to people at that very early turn. And it starts to slip from all of these different Romance languages from its early uses in Spanish and Portuguese and Italian and French into English by about 15, uh, um, the mid 16th century. Um, and when it's used, it's not solely used to describe uh, animals or humans. It's used in the case of both. And I would argue and in many, in many cases, it slips from describing um, animals to describing humans. And it also carries a number of other connotations along the way. Um, Araza in Spanish can be, and that's with a single Z, can be a, an imperfection. Um, but, or, you know, there are different kind of metallurgical terms in which you would talk about imperfections as, as Araza. So that's also kind of, um, it starts to suffuse the early definition of this word. Um, so much of the kind of puzzle behind the, the earliest origins of this book has been trying to figure out what this word means and to whom, and especially why animal breeders were so apt to use it and what their use of this word did for the modern history of race. And I suppose um, maybe what they were doing evolved with their 
understanding or their understanding of the word evolved with what they were trying to do with animal breeding. Absolutely. And I think that what you start to see here is um, you can see it in terms of a, as a conceptual blend, right? When new words enter our vernacular, um, we try all different sorts of meanings on for size. But what ends up happening is that these old metaphorical connotations start to blend together in new and, in, and um, um, exciting ways without always losing the entirety of their previous connotation. Um, to think about the like a, a kind of provocative example using another animal word, um, and I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say this this word on, on the New Books Network, but you can think about the term bitch, right? Um, this is a term used for, for a female dog, which has, of course, become a derogatory word for, for a, a woman, perhaps a, a woman of ill repute at some times, perhaps a woman with a particular attitude. That doesn't mean when you say that word about a, a, a person in the present that you're calling her a female dog, right? Um, but on the other hand, the there were a series of blends that led the term to develop this meaning that are still sometimes present in the usages that 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 um, uh, that the term takes on. Wow. Well, and I'd like to look at another basic term, uh, an English word this time, which is breeding. And the first part of the book delves into horse breeding, one of my favorite topics, and that continues in many cultures today, as we know. So we may think we know something about it. But what did the Renaissance breeders seek to accomplish through their horse breeding? And what did they actually do in pursuit of that goal? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Renaissance um, the Renaissance saw a real crescendo in interest in horse breeding. Um, and that was because, you know, the early modern um, culture drew on a lot of the chivalric priorities of the um, uh, of the Middle Ages, right? So this idea of a knight on a great steed was still present as an ideal of masculinity. Um, but as we really get into the the fourteen hundreds and and early fifteen hundreds. Um, there are a rise of new different styles of riding that start to emerge. No longer is it necessary to, you know, dress up as a great knight and to, um, you know, charge into someone on your, your, um, uh, your kind of massive horse or massive for the time. Um, instead, with new developments in pistols, um, uh, uh, the ability to be very versatile or agile grew in, um, uh, you know, in, 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 in military importance, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that meant that new books of military strategy uh, emphasized how one could uh, prepare and train horses that would be more adept at these quick and, um, and uh, quick movements that would allow them to really take a greater part in a gun-based warfare. Um, and you know that was also that 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 shift was also combined with um, a growing diplomatic access that many early modern Europeans had with strains of horses that were famed for their speed, right? And here we're talking about um, uh, populations like um, animals from North Africa or from Spain, which have many characteristics that would see, we would see in um, modern uh, Arabian horses or, um, or like the, the PRE. And these tend to be um, 
short backed, not very tall horses, but who are mm. extremely agile, right? Um, and in uh, North African populations, um, the, the, the Berber horses were also very, very famous. They were famous for being very fast. Um, so all of this starts to combine in this Renaissance Italian horse racing culture. And that horse racing culture develops around what's called the palio. And you can still see the palio today run in, in Siena. It's an amazing site that pulls on all of the different um, little communities of Siena, um, come together and, and race their horses, representing their, their, their portion of the city through the city streets. And that palio circuit was extremely prominent in these um, Renaissance Italian city-states. So there would be a set of, of Palio racehorses who would go and race in Bologna and in Rome and in Florence and all of these different sites and compete against each other um, in a way that would contribute to civic reputation. All that saying, it meant something to be able to win these races and to breed horses that were, were fast, right? Um, so that led um, early modern Europeans like the, the Gonzaga family, um, who were already developing relationships with, um, uh, the, for, for instance, the, the kind of Ottoman Turkish world, to really lean in to those diplomatic relationships with both the goal and the added advantage of getting really fast horses, like like what they would call the Turko, right? The Turkish horses, which they could add to their own local breeding programs in order to increase the speed, agility, and also exotic origins of their local stock. So all that's to say, like, Renaissance Italians um, were, and, and Renaissance Europeans more broadly, were really committed to these um, experiments in breeding faster, better horses. And in many ways, they had leaned into this idea that nature could be perfected, improved through breeding. And they, they attempted to seize control through that growing technology. That is so interesting. And I had never before made that link or heard that link between military developments or armament developments and developments in the horse. And it made me think of how much knowledge, medical and scientific knowledge we've got out of military research that's taken place in the last century. So um, that's really interesting. And then also the the, the link then into racing and how quickly racing horses became or, or speed became a thing. Uh, that was a desired Absolutely. trait from breeding. Absolutely. Right. And like, and you know, one, um, one of the things that I tried to um, do in this book is to show snapshots of all of these different breeding cultures that have, again, different goals in mind, right? When it comes to cats, sometimes it's creating the perfect cat to go in one sleeve or just a cat so docile that one can carry it around, right? Um, and some horses, likewise, are bred for speed and others bred for the manege, which will be the series of, of, of controlled movements that will grow into modern dressage, right? So, Different communities of breeders and like different animal populations were all um, could all be intentionally bred for a purpose, right? And so what that like 
suggests to me is that we imagine the early modern world as, again, a highly stratified society in which it's very hard to cross um, boundaries from you know, one purpose into another, but that every individual has a role within those um uh within those kind of cultural priorities right but there's a lot of um breeders were very interested in um creating opportunities for differentiation right so that you could have a very specific horse for pulling your cart and a very specific um dog for for um uh hunting rabbits versus hunting boar right yeah so let's bring art into the mix and beauty and you draw a fascinating connection between art, beauty, imagination, and breeding outcomes of all things. And for instance, in chapter one, which is called Breeders as Philosophers, you discuss the philosopher Giovanni Battista della Porta's writings. And you note that from his perspective, and I quote, all creatures from sheep to chickens to horses to humans had a similar connection between their imagination and their vision. Sex needed to be staged. And the beauty of the surrounding world had a real impact on the appearance and behavior of future generations. So that's just so evocative of different images in my mind. Um, but what effect did this philosophy have on animal breeders and their practices? Yeah, it's it's a um, question that really gets at the heart of the book in many ways, and the heart of why I use Renaissance in the book's title. Um, uh, Jakob Burkhardt, this um real founder in the field of Renaissance studies, um, uh, wrote a, a, a seminal book many decades ago that suggested that the Renaissance could all be understand uh, understood as a, as a work of art, right? The state is a work of art. The an individual is also a work of art. And what he really meant by that was that this di- desire to perfect and to consciously shape the world was so pervasive in the Italian Renaissance. Mm. And you see that with enormous clarity when it comes to the animals, again, that are created for all of these different roles across society. Um, so not only are these um, horses depicted on, on and beautiful tapestries or beautiful frescoes and murals in uh, Italian palazzi, right, connecting the place, the animals of these communities and um, to the visitors who can walk through these pleasure palaces. Um, but the animals themselves are, are works of art. And indeed, in the passage that you're pointing to from Porta, there's this idea that art could influence the the animal body. So it was a um, you know dating back all the way to um, the the Old Testament. There's this idea that um, what an animal looks upon during a moment of conception will have an influence on the, its progeny. So um, the one of the passages that I that I find so evocative about this is is um, Jacob and the breeding of speckled or non-speckled um, uh, sheep and goats, and um, Jacob in, in in the Bible attempts to make um, uh, a a speckled or non-speckled population by um, laying sticks around the water trough where his uh, livestock will eventually come and mate. So what's the idea behind this, right? It's 
a, is it natural magic? Some would say yes, some would say no. It's this idea that animals see the world around them and that what they see then has an impact on the next generation who will be born from from their loins, right? And that same idea was also true in when it came to human reproduction. So as um, Giovanni Battista della Porta and many others would say, if you wanted to have really beautiful babies, what you needed to do is adorn your bedchamber with, you know, floating cupids and, and beautiful depictions of beautiful gods, because their beauty would then be impressed upon your eyes and have an influence on, um, on the child to come. I knew that about humans, but what striked in in terms of how human imagination was was supposed to impact reproduction in the early modern world, but I had never, I was so shocked in many ways to see that that also pertained to a non-human animal world, right? So whether it's sheep or whether it's horses or whether cattle, you know, across the board, Animals see the world around them, imagine, and then have an impact on the next generation. And I think what that suggests about early modernity and animality is that um, animals were thinking, feeling, sentient beings, although um, not sentient, of course, and or rational in the same way that humans were, but they certainly could imagine. Um, and that was... Um, really important for breeders to control as uh, they set about creating, again, these improved, what they consider to be improved um, strains of stock under their management. Hmm. Wow, a lot to think about there. And another example of the connection between art and breeding comes up in chapter three. And here you describe the Mantuan court and its massive frescoes of horses drawn from life, which I would love to see. And you write that life in the court was a life in which fine art was constantly accompanied by carefully refined people and animals. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, what was the relationship between these carefully refined humans, horses, and art? And what significance did it have for the humans? Oh, goodness. Um, That's really been at the core of some of the most um, troubling aspects that I've encountered in researching this book. Um, Most of the... um, most of the historical material that I've kind of dredged up over the course of this research um, centers on non-human animal breeding. So, you know, there are a lot of the horses, there are a lot of uh, dogs, there are turkeys, there are camelids, um, there are um, other types of domestics. Um, but what I found was that it was it was impossible to section off the cases in which um, this language of breeding or intentionality in controlling reproduction touched non-human, uh, touched human subjects as well as non-human subjects. Um, and in the Mantuan example, we um, one of the kind of starkest um, moments where there was such an overlap is when it comes to Isabella d'Este and um, what she calls a a a raza, a, a raza of dwarves. Um, and so um, this, this there was a correspondence from Isabella d'Este, a series of letters from Isabella, who is this famed um, Italian patroness, um, and her cousins and other contacts in um, other relatively nearby Italian courts. 
Um, and in one of her letters, she offered to send along the, uh, the a child born to one of her dwarf or or a person in her court with dwarf dwarfism, um, uh, a, a courtly entertainer, had just had a baby, um, and uh, Isabella d'Este then described this baby as. Um, doubtless going to uh, remain small, right? And she was happy to send along the toddler to her um, other contact at a nearby court. And again, she described this toddler using the term razza, right? As part of this this um, razza of people with, with, with dwarfism, as we would, would call it today. Goodness, um, there's a lot to unpack in that, right? Um, and I mean, that's not the only example, right? Throughout the book, there are many mentions of the language of, of animal breeding being applied to um, attempts to make a either more controlled or to their minds, more perfect world, right? You see that in utopianist language. And I would really say that looks and smells a lot like early eugenics long before we're supposed to have scientific eugenics based on the dominant historical narrative. Um, and I, again, I think that those are some of the most, most, uh, most troubling slippages. But what I try to do in the book is explore why we find those slippages so troubling, right? We're all aware that that humans come from from reproductive choices that are not so different from what makes more, you know, domesticated animals, right? Um, so, so why is it so repellent to a modern reader to see this term razza, a term that's also used for animal breeding, applied to the improvement? according to the subjects who used it at the time, of, of the human body. And I think what we find there is um, that, you know, we, we, many, many moderns turn to the Renaissance because we want to see the origins of ideas of, of freedom and artwork and autonomy and agency, right? The growth of the artist. But what we find instead in this subsection of its history is a real illiberalism, a real desire to transform a prince into a stud, a real desire to allow the um, the biological to dictate um, or uh, someone's uh, social potentiality, right? And that's really what we see in this in this case of the individual with dwarfism um, uh, being, you know, described and depicted right alongside um, the Gonzaga's uh, obsessive interest in their uh, um, horses and dogs. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Yeah, but as I recall, you also wrote about some people who disagreed with the idea that, um, of course, genes is not how they would understand it, but you know that breeding was necessarily what produced the highest quality human being. And there were others who felt that it was um, something that you acquired through life, through morality or... Um, 
religiosity or whatever. Absolutely. And that key debate, I mean, we could say that in modern terms of nature and nurture, runs through the heart of the book. Um, it would be too easy and too cynical to say that everyone in the early modern world believed that um, uh, that breeding dictated potential. That is not true. And we have great evidence to su suggest how that isn't true. Um, for example, um, in Baldassare Castiglione's um, amazing dialogue of uh, of the courtier, um, which is really in many ways a a window into Italian courtly life, and in other ways a kind of um, how to book for adopting the air that would be that would allow one to kind of penetrate the heart of court culture. Um, in this book, um, Castiglione represents two sides of the debate about nature and nurture. On one hand, some of his interlocutors say, well, you know, the apple doesn't fall so far from the tree, right? You, you want uh, the, the, the children of nobles will inherently have some characteristics that um, make them better than the children of non-nobles. Mm -hmm. To which often the younger interlocutors for in Castiglione's representation of this Italian Renaissance courtly world responded, um, no, absolutely not, right? It's, um, it is, someone's potential is what they make for themselves. Um, how many nobles have come to futures of nothing or resemble their parents very little, right? It is certainly not set in stone. We also find that belief in education um, appear in really important ways in, in when it comes to being able to train people of all different backgrounds um, to adopt new ideas, right? You have to believe that one can be nurtured in order to truly believe that one can be converted to Christianity. That's going to be extremely mm. important as we turn to the Spanish imperial side of this story. Mm. And likewise, even those who are devoting their lives to animal breeding often say, ah, breeding can only take the animals so far, right? So they emphasize training instead of breeding. And we see that in the writings of, of, of um, Grisone, the, the, the individual who many consider to be the founder of modern dressage. His whole system for training horses is predicated on this idea that you know, certainly some animals will be inclined to do certain things over others, but there are techniques for improvement that um, any, or at the very least, most trainers can employ that would improve their steeds. So again, it's always this pendulum swinging between a belief in nature and nurture. It's never a, 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 a unilateral system, although, of course, some authors hold unilateral positions, but societally, it swings back and forth. So you mentioned Spanish imperialism, and let's move on to that. In part three of the book, um, you discuss Spanish settlement in the Americas, and the concept arises here, uh, mestizaje, as the Spaniards would say. What are the origins of this term, and how is it helpful to understanding the interaction of European and Mesoamerican cultures at this time? Uh, um, so mestizaje is one of these words that one would find all over the, the literature on, on Latin America. 
Why? Mestizaje is a word that um, in English would translate into mixing, but um, is much more than that. It's a word that provides space for two or more different cultural backgrounds coming together in syncretic, unresolved ways in one individual. And so in many ways, um, historically speaking, we consider the cultures of of modern-day Latin America to be, um, in many ways, mestizo cultures. And within that, there are, of course, people who identify or have been identified as mestizos meaning individuals with both European and uh, indigenous American ancestry in many uses of the term, or more broadly, a mixed ancestry. So we've looked at the, um, historically speaking, at the the use of that term in human subjects. Um, but in many, many scholars have, have mentioned that at the earliest uses of mestizo, which is the, the kind of singular of mixed individual, mm-hmm. um, or mestizaje more broadly, is a zoological term. It's a term that emerges in breeding documents. It's a term about um, a, a being born between two types. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I have done in this book is follow the term mestizo as um, it is applied to uh, dog breeding in the Americas. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what I'm, but predominantly, there are two things that I'm really interested in with that. On one hand, it is showcasing that, like with with some of the examples that I mentioned earlier in this interview, um, the term mestizo is is becomes very human, but not solely human, right? So to tell a story of mestizaje that misses the non-human animal world is mm-hmm. in many ways to miss that universality of, of, of questions of reproduction and the extent to which, um, uh, you know, categories of, of belonging um, were not solely assigned to humans alone. Um, and the, other, the other way in which I, I follow that term is to look at this extraordinary example of another moment of mixing that showcases um, the the extent of cultural and natural collision in the Colombian exchange. And that is through dogs, right? Um, For the most part, um, European and um, North and South American nature cultures were in many ways so different that many populations of of, um, flora and fauna of different types of animals didn't have a chance to to interact or to interbreed, right? So for example, horses are coming from, uh, from Europe there, uh, there had been horses in the Americas, but they had been extinct long before the conquistadores, you know, uh, uh, land in the Caribbean. So there are no indigenous horses to, to intermix with. By contrast, there were dog populations on either side of the Americas. Um, and what I follow in the book is what happens when these two different types of dog populations um, meet and you know have their own kind of canine love stories that then results in um, new populations of of mixed dogs and you even in those documents um, you find this evocation of of the term mestizo to describe these new world dogs who have um, mixed European 
and indigenous canine ancestry. Okay, so just to stay with the dog breeding um, for a bit, you particularly delve into Nahuatl dog breeding. And what function or meaning did the dog breeding have in Nahuatl culture? Oh, I mean, so Nahuas were um, extremely interested in controlling their environment. We've seen this in their floating Chinampa gardens around um, Tenochtitlan. We see this in, you know, so many aspects of what we know about of, about Aztec life. Among their many um, spaces where, where um, Nahuas were influencing the, the non-human natural world, um, there was a role assigned to the the dog breeder within uh, Nawa society. So dog breeders were often um, uh, known as as you know seeking opportunity. They would take their dogs to the market and often sell them for meat. Dogs were eaten in in um, Mesoamerica and uh, all the way up um, uh, all the way up through the early modern period and. Um, so the the Nawa dog breeder would, um, if someone was born on on a, a, the day of the dog, um, the uh, one would believe that that they would have that would be a wonderful portent for their ability to gain great wealth in 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 life. So dogs carry all sorts of meanings for um, Nawas. They would help one cross over from the living realm into the realm of death. And um, of course, socially, they were important both as companions, right, as as the you know creature who you would sleep with, who would keep the bottom of your bed warm, um, but also as a key protein source, as as something to eat. So um, there was a real um, extensive indigenous American complex of dog breeding um, long before the Europeans arrived, which in many ways the Europeans. Uh, certainly tried to shut down um, indigenous uh, consumption of dogs because there was such a they they came with this this taboo that dogs were not meant to be eaten, um, which they brought with them from Europe. Yeah, well, interesting that they served a dual role of being companions or being um, food source. Yeah, absolutely, and um, uh, and they really, I mean, the the line between I think that it's 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 peculiar to those of us who have grown up in cultures with this kind of taboo around dog, of, around, around um, the eating of dogs. But yeah, again, there was this, um, this openness to how, um, you know, there, there was, there was no tab- less of a taboo about the, um, the separation between companionship and consumption. Hmm. So another animal, and this is another animal that I'm very fond of. Uh, and the most intriguingly named chapter in your book to me was Camelids and Christian Nature. And I'm I'm really interested in camels, and I could ask you so many questions about the chapter, but I'm going to keep it to two. Um, first, what was the connection between camels in Spain and Andean camelids, such as llamas and vicuñas, if I'm saying that right? Um, and the second is, how are Christian Nature and camelids related? Oh, um, this is this is, was one of the trickiest chapters to write because um, it's really a chapter about um, taxonomy. 
It's a chapter about the, this desire that especially European naturalists had to fix all different elements of nature into different categories and say that, you know, uh, never the two shall meet. Um, and we see this in the dog case too, right? This, the, that, um, by the time we get to the 18th century, many enlightenment natural philosophers were inclined to argue that there were uh, fewer or even no indigenous American dog breeds um, because those animal populations had changed so significantly by the time we get up to the uh, to the 1700s and the 1800s. Um, and that's really, I think, what you also see in the case of camelids in Christian nature. So. Um, the connection between camels in Spain and Andean camelids um, is in many ways that these are two separate types of, of animal populations that we would say in modern evolutionary biological terms are really closely related, right? They all have this arcing neck. They have a similarly shaped back. They have similar feet, right? There are, there are many behavioral attributes that are similar. And what happens when the, the Spanish arrive in the Americas is that they essentially look at the, you know, all of these, these animals running up and down the Andes and say, aha, these are sheep. What? Why on earth would they be sheep? They're sheep in some ways because they produce wool. Um, but even more so, I think that we have some uh, su historical suggestions that the Spanish are just much more comfortable with the idea of a Christian, of, a, of the meek Christian sheep than um, animals that are more closely akin to, related to those dominant bestial forces of an Islamic world, which is, of course, relies in many ways on dromedaries and in other regions, Bactrian camels in order to get around, right? So I read this, this description of, of animals from the Andes as sheep, as in many ways being Spaniards' attempt to Christianize um, uh, South American nature and to kind of wedge it into a category that they would find more socially acceptable or um, um, and and I think that we have um, good reason to see that both in in um, uh, you know non expert descriptions of nature and even as it infuses as these ideas start to infuse the expert um, literature on natural history. Wow, very interesting. The meek sheep of the Christians. The meek sheep. <laughs> Can't yeah. get out between Jacob and his and the his shepherds and his flock. Or, yeah, exactly. Is and I guess that's that's like um, again, if you zoom out to the broadest level, one of the major takeaways of the book is that um, you know, animal husbandry and animal agriculture can always be practical, but it's always also symbolic too, right? It's like those multivalent meanings behind key words. Um, they can constantly be be uh, invoked in new ways. And again, the, the sheep is somehow, again, an inherent symbolic representation of, of a Christian quality in a Christian kind of ethos. And certainly, you know, imagining South America as overrun by, you know, uh, little recalcitrant camels, um, 
makes it look uh, 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 like something that would be very hard to convert, as the Spanish found in many of their attempts at reconquista or or the spread of the Christian faith in um, the Iberian Peninsula and North Africa. It is hard to convert a camel, I think. Um, it's very hard. Anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah there's one of the insults that you see over and over in um the kind of travel logs about the animals in the andes is um you know if you want to say somebody is stubborn you say you are a camel <laughs> you are, sorry you are yeah, sorry no just kidding not you are a camel you are a llama you are a, a llama, llama. <laughs> oh yeah with apologies to camels um that's right so finally i want to go back to race and this time i'll use the English term race. Your subtitle contains the word race. Um, and the book offers several uses of the word, but its definition is actually given in an endnote. And then in the epilogue, you kind of seem to downplay its importance to your study or how much we can draw from extrapolating animals to humans. So I'm wondering, what did you ultimately find to be the meaning of race in the context of your work, if you did find a meaning? Oh, absolutely. Um... So there has been so much amazing new research that has come out and is coming out in the next few years on this question of race and racism in the pre-modern world. And one of the things that a lot of those studies do is they try to, to, they focus on, they often focus on human populations and they try to get away from the term race just because the term race is not used um, consistently for um, humans in the in the deeper past that doesn't mean that the early modern or medieval or ancient world is not um, are not littered with exempla of racism and um, I want my book to contribute to their studies in in a positive way rather than um, becoming so committed to a focus on the on the term and the etymology of of what will become modern race as to as to in many ways undermine that argument right there are many many histories of race and racism especially those that include um uh, a focus on human subjects that desperately need to be told and in order to do that work scholars need to be tricky about uh, scholars need to be careful about this tricky issue of when to um when and how to translate words like razza, right? On the other hand, though, I believe very much that there are, um, that, that this story of animal breeding is a central one to consider in the long history of race and racism. Um, just because we as humans often want to, often rightly are focusing on those stories that are specific to our humanity, um, that doesn't mean that in the earliest evocations of this term, um, razza isn't a race, isn't a word that links human reproduction and futurity and reproductive autonomy or lack thereof to that experienced by non-human animals. I think that's a historical fact that we simply can't avoid. Um, so I have, I, again, I see this book as contributing to one thread of uh, in the kind of tapestry of the history of race and racism. And that is this attention to the way, in, the, the way that this word razza 
was actually used in the Renaissance and the early modern period. And the moral of that story is that race is not solely a human phenomenon. In order to think broadly about um, the implications of race and racism in our world, both in our deep history and in our present, we must consider questions of biodiversity and um, non-human subjects alongside the not with equal importance necessarily to the human subjects who have been in many ways very maligned by that history. Wow, what a point. And very Renaissance of you to see your work as being a thread woven into the tapestry of oh, the broader tapestry's topic. all the way down. <laughs> yes. Um, so, Mackenzie, we've taken up a lot of your time today, but I do want to ask you, because I know you're working on some other things, what are you working on next? Oh, um, I'm very much looking forward to um, the two edited volumes that are going to be coming out over the next couple of years. Um, the first is Natural Things in Early Modern Worlds. And this uh, edited volume, which I've done with Anna Toledano and Dudu Yildirim, has been an amazing foray into the itinerary histories of different natural things that are moving across early modern worlds. So whether that's magical, quasi-magical bezoir stones or coffee or um, uh, uh, birds from South America that end up trying to make it into European collections but not quite getting there, um, it's really a book about um, the knowledge that is lost as natural things move from their place in the non-human um, ecological landscape into the edifice of, of European science. So I'm really proud of that. I'm really proud of uh, this upcoming book on um, imperial science in the Chinese and Spanish empires, Knowing an Empire, which is um, going to be an extraordinary comparative project uh, uh, made possible um, by the work of both Chinese and um, Spanish scholars and their kind of search for commonality in the early modern world. And then I'm approaching a second monograph. Um, and that monograph is, uh, a, a, is about, as you mentioned at the start of, at the, the start of this interview, um, it's about this quest to find cures in the early modern world. And in that I, I follow the early modern drug trade. Um, and, I'm really interested in how drugs were um, collected from the living environment. So there's this element of bioprospecting um, and in the ways in which nature was indelibly changed from these extraction projects. Wow. Well, those all sound so intriguing. And you are a very busy researcher. <laughs> we'll see sometimes I feel like you are a llama but here we are <laughs> thank you so much for speaking with me today that's it well thank you very much and I want to remind everyone the book is The Perfection of Nature Animals Breeding and Race in the Renaissance by Mackenzie Cooley and Mackenzie it's been a real pleasure thank you so much <laughs>